Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we'll hear from William Urey, a co-founder of Harvard's program on negotiation and one of the world's leading experts on mediation. Today he will discuss his impression of the country's current problem-solving methods and what needs to change. Let's listen in. Welcome, and uh, I'm really uh, delighted to have uh, William Murray joining us uh, tonight, uh, a friend of mine. Over the past 35 years, he's served as a negotiation advisor and mediator uh, in conflicts and, and taught negotiation and mediation to tens of thousands of corporate executives, including me. Um, our company took a course from him about 20 years ago. He probably doesn't remember that, uh, but we adopted his uh, style as our official company negotiating methodology after that course. William is also uh, with with former President Jimmy Carter. He co-founded the International Negotiation Network, a non-governmental body seeking to end civil wars around the world. Uh, He is also the co-founder of Harvard's program on negotiation and a distinguished fellow at the Harvard Negotiation Project. So I will uh, turn it over to William. Thanks, Jim. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak with you today, this evening, and uh, I'm a big fan of No Labels. And I just want to begin by sharing a a news story that just came my way, a little ray of hope for today, which you don't see very often, which was that today the two rival candidates for the governorship of Utah put out a joint ad calling for civility and a peaceful transition of power. And the Democratic nominee says uh, in this ad, we can debate issues without degrading each other's character. Win or lose in Utah, we work together. And then his Republican counterpart says on the same video, we can disagree without hating each other. So let's show the country there's a better way. And they josh back and forth with each other. And I just thought that's really what's called for, and that's really the spirit of no labels, really. It's a, to me, it's about how do we get to yes in these very challenging day, times of today. I've been a student of negotiation and the business of negotiation, as it were, for over 40 years. And I have to say, having traveled around the world and traveled around this country lots, I've never seen a time when our country needs more to learn how to practice problem solving together, dealing with the most difficult issues that we have, but doing it jointly, you know, attacking the problem, not the people, tackling the problem together, you know, soft on the people, hard on the problem, you know, focusing on the interests. What are the real genuine concerns and worries and fears and aspirations that people have behind their positions? Uh, trying to invent options for mutual gains so that both sides can benefit, using objective criteria where you di- where you disagree, criteria fairness to figure out some way to move forward. Basically, all of the principles that 40 years ago Roger Fisher and Bruce Patton and I described in, in, in our book, Getting to Yes. And what I feel is that today, in today's times, we actually need more than just that. We need more than just, you know, what we're classically described as win-win solutions, we need to add a third win to that. We need a win-win-win, and that's a win for the whole, a win for the whole country, 
a win for our children and grandchildren, a win for, for the world. And because it seems to me that we're fast dissolving into what I would call lose, lose, lose game, where even whoever wins, you know, whoever wins a particular, like this election, you know, they're going to lose. Everyone's going to lose, but the biggest losers, of course, are going to be all of us, our communities. The pressing challenge that we face is we need to learn how to change the game, how to change the game from lose, lose, lose to win, win, win. It's incredibly hard. It won't be easy, but I firmly believe it's possible. I believe it, it takes three things. None of them are easy, but the first thing is to do what No Labels is doing so brilliantly is to learn how to build bridges across differences. It means learning how to listen more than you talk. It means learning how to be creative and really look for where are the creative solutions? How can we expand the pie before we divide it up? How do we make it easier for the other side to make the decisions we'd like them to make? That's the whole art of bridge building and we could go deep, more deeply into it. But I just wanna say that, that I've discovered in my 40 years of working on very difficult challenges from civil wars to wildcat strikes and coal mines and business disputes, boardroom battles is, it takes more than that. And, and what's missing to me often is the biggest obstacle I've found to negotiation, to getting what we want in a negotiation is not what we think it is. It's not the difficult person or the organization on the other side of the table. The biggest obstacle to us getting what we want in negotiation is right here. It's ourselves. It's our own human tendency, very understandable to react, to get angry, for instance. As Ambrose Bierce once put it, when angry, you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. And that's what often happens. We're reaction machines. So that the first, so the challenge, in addition to building bridges, is I use the phrase, the metaphor of going to the balcony. It's almost like you're negotiating on a stage and all the players on the stage. Part of us needs to go to a kind of mental, emotional balcony overlooking that stage to pause for a moment, to keep our eyes on the prize. What is it that we really want in this negotiation? To get some perspective and see the big picture. And that, I think, will be required if we're going to get through this difficult moment, challenging moment in our country's history. And I just want to say that even that sometimes may not be enough. We, we need a third leg to the stool, which is a third strategy to get to yes. And that is we need to activate something that I call the third side. Because if you think about every conflict, most conflicts, it's always got two sides. You know, the, the Republicans and the Democrats, there's the Arabs and the Israelis. But what we often don't see is that in every conflict, there's actually a third side, which is the side of the whole community around it. Uh, it's actually the most ancient human birthright for dealing with conflicts is to involve and activate the community among us. And that community, what does that community do? It's, it reminds us that there's a larger perspective. This is not a finite game, it's an infinite game. And that there are children, there are grandchildren, there's legacy, we need to think into the future. It reminds us of the whole. And to me, this is where the business community really comes in. Because I've worked in different conflicts around the world. Uh, you know, I remember working in South Africa, for example, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, when it seemed absolutely impossible that there could ever be a, a political transformation in South Africa. And I watched as it happened. And it happened in good part because the business community got involved. 
the business community thought, oh, we're not going to get involved in politics, you know, but they got involved and they played the role of a bridge builder between the different sides. They played the role of the third side. They didn't just have to take one side or the other. They took the side of the whole. They stood for this because they actually recognized this was their self-interest, of course, because with, with conflicts, with instability, you know, the economy goes down. So I saw the same thing happen when I worked in Northern Ireland, Catholics and Protestants. You know, it was the business community, the confederation of industry that came together and brought the sides to their senses. So I think the right now, as I turn to our own country right now, as we face this very perilous moment, because I've been in, I've worked in a lot of countries over the, over the last 40 years. I've seen polarized countries and I've seen what elections do to them. Elections actually deepen the polarization. They don't solve the polarization, they deepen the polarization. And when you have weapons circulating, you can get levels of violence that are unthinkable. So that at this point, for example, there was a recent poll that asked people about uh, their fears and 40% of the American people are strongly fearful, concerned that this country might be on the verge of what is totally unthinkable, which is a civil war. Another 20% are somewhat concerned. So you have the majority of American people are concerned now, regardless of whether that's true, and I, I believe that we're away from, away from that, the fact that that's the level of fear, the level of anxiety in the society is, is huge. And it's accentuated by, of course, we have a pandemic, we have economic recession or depression, we have racial unrest, and now we have these polarized elections. So the country is highly activated, lots of fear, lots of anger, and, no matter what happens in the next uh, few weeks, a uh, few weeks from now or a few months from now, however long it takes the, them to count the votes, half the country is gonna be bitterly disappointed with the result. And there's gonna be a lot of anger. And so right now, what we need to do is calm the country down. And this is where I see business playing an enormously important role because business leaders are trusted. They're trusted far more than politicians, as you know. and business can play a stabilizing role. As I saw in South Africa, as I saw in Northern Ireland, can call people to the balcony, can keep calm, count the votes, we'll get through this. The business community doesn't need to take sides, it just can take the third side, which is the side of the whole. Understanding that of course, the economy, our jobs, the jobs machine needs, requires political stability. And that's what's needed. And, and a kind of a message from the business community, as I see emerging actually now, different associations. I was just on a call this morning with the National Association of Manufacturers, another one with the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable. And people are beginning to realize that business can play that third side role because business after all is the kind of the glue of America. Business can, can help build bridges. So I'll just end this brief remark and then take your questions just by saying, I believe we can do this. I'm convinced we can do this. We can get through this, but only together, only with third side leadership, like the leadership provided by No Labels and by leaders such as yourselves. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to open up the uh, Q&A. I see uh, Representative uh, Tom Swazi has joined. I don't know if, if uh, you would like to uh, make any comments, Representative Swazi, about what it's like to negotiate in Congress? You know, one of the toughest parts of negotiating is to figure out exactly what the other side really, really wants. I just heard someone today talk to me about uh, Mitch McConnell 
and suggested that Mitch McConnell thinks he's going to lose. And he just doesn't want to be the one putting through any $2 trillion deal at this time and just stick it with the Democrats in January. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but one of the big challenges in life uh, is when people, when you really just can't trust what the other person is saying. You know, what the problem solvers is, has accomplished more than anything is that there's 25 Democrats and 25 Republicans who have grown to trust each other. Because we've been in these meetings, we've negotiated, we've talked about our personal feelings about things, and nobody ever leaked. Nobody ever told other people what was happening in those meetings. So we've built trust with each other. It's so important. And one of the challenges that we're facing in society today is a very cavalier sense of the truth. And when you don't know what the other person is really thinking and what's really motivating them, and people will just say whatever they want because they can't be held accountable. Uh, and that goes for a lot of people. That happened to me in my primary. That happens to me in my general election. People, politicians, because they're not accountable to the press because the press is so fractured right now. When people are not accountable and they don't tell the truth, it's very hard to negotiate because you're not really sure what's motivating the other side and what it is they really want. So uh, I'm just going to listen for the rest of the time here and uh, and let you know that we're, there's some of us that are working very hard in the problem solvers to try and find some common ground and figure out what we can, you know, there's 90%. I, my belief has always been there's, we all share 90% in common and it's probably less than 10% even that divides us. And we just need to find that common ground to move forward. Uh, thank you. I, William, you have any comment on? I want to wholeheartedly agree with uh, Representative uh, Swazi. 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 You know, it is one of the challenges, uh, the great challenges of negotiations to figure out what the other side wants. And this is why I find that actually negotiation is much more about asking questions than it's about making statements. To really try and figure out, don't just jump in with your position, but why is it you want that? To be one of the most magical questions is the why question is, help me understand what it is that you're really trying to get at behind that position on that particular bill or, you know, What's really driving you? What's what's the real concern here? If we can get to that level, and that and to get to that level requires, as you were saying, trust. It requires trust because sometimes people don't want to tell you what they what they actually what their interests are because they don't trust you. And so building that trust, which is what you're doing to me, is absolutely critical. Trust is trust is the capital, the social capital with which we can construct deals. Trust is that's the big that's the big challenge right now between you know Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and President Trump. So really neither side trusts the other. Yeah, and we don't really we don't really know what anybody wants. We don't know are they really motivated by you know the common good and make the world a better place to live in? Are they motivated just by the, their election results and what will give them political advantage between now and November third? It's hard to know exactly what everybody wants. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi's interest may not be aligned with Chuck Schumer's interest. And Mitch McConnell's interest may not be aligned with President Trump's interests. And so it's very hard in the current environment to figure out what everybody really wants. It's true. And this is why negotiation is some of the hardest work that anyone could ever do. It's not easy. The, 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 one, the one thing that we have is it's, we've done it before. You know, this country's been through a lot of rough times before. This country has been able to, you know, get to yes, you know, you know, during the rough times of the 60s and the civil rights struggles and, you know, during the 30s and, and, and economic struggle. So it's, it's uh, but it takes, it's the hard work 
that daily work that you do of building trust, as you mentioned. I mean, that's quite amazing that that 50 members of Congress are able to construct enough trust that you don't get leaks in, in a very leaky institution. And and I and I absolutely agree. It it takes um, it, it takes trust. And right now, in a condition of distrust, the question is because I I often work in war situations where no one trusts the other. There's zero trust. And so, just as one one, um, now I, I'll tell you a story. Um, I uh, about 20 years ago, I was I was asked by President Carter to actually go to Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela at that point, as it is today, was bitterly divided. President was Hugo Chavez. You know, there were a million people on the streets demanding his resignation, a million people on the streets supporting him. You know, the, the people were worried that it was going to break out into widespread civil violence, if not civil war. I had a meeting with Chavez, and I said, you know, I said to him, you know, why don't you sit down with your adversaries? Why don't you sit down with your the political opposition? He said, I don't trust them. He said, you know, they tried to mount a coup here and right here in the, in, in the palace. Uh, they're traitors. So I said, okay, so I got it. You don't trust them. I understand that. So just tell me something. What is there anything that they could do, any step, any small step that they could take tomorrow that would send you a signal that maybe maybe you could begin to trust them. What could they do? You know, and he thought about it for a moment. He said, well, they could stop calling me a monkey on national television. Anyway, so I, I got a list from him. Then I went over to the opposition and I said, what could Chavez, President Chavez do tomorrow that, you know, what's, you know, constructing a kind of a menu of, of trust building items. It's just, it just come up with a menu of five or 10 things. And the first thing they said, well, he could resign. I said, yeah, but uh, give me something more realistic, you know? And they said, well, you know, he could stop uh, calling our leaders the four horsemen of the apocalypse on national television. A lot of it actually boiled down to respect. This is one of the things I find is the cheapest concession you can make in negotiation is to give the other fellow a little respect. It costs you nothing and it means everything to them. And so we constructed a list of a menu of items where you just, instead of just talking about the issues, you talked about the problem of distrust. And then Chavez took one little step. The opposition took one little step. You know, they, they, it's, they're not demands. They're just like, here are some things. If you want to begin to construct some respect or some trust, this is what you can do. So we kind of tried to construct a joint language. And those are the kinds of uh, measures we need. We need to sort of think creatively of how we deal with distrust, how we begin to escalate. It's a little bit like climbing a ladder uh, because trust, as you know, is, is something that uh, once it's destroyed, it's very hard to rebuild, but you can kind of start to rebuild. And, you know, I started off my career working uh, on the U.S. and Soviet Union in the, the Cold War, and there was zero trust. But the United States and Soviet Union still managed to reach all kinds of agreements that were in many ways independent of trust. But, we, you know, it was, it was hard work, but it, but it can be done. And if the U.S. and Soviets could do it, then perhaps the Democrats and Republicans can do it. Hmm. Well, uh, so we have uh, several questions, uh, but I, I want to uh, ask the, the first one. You're, you're doing some work on um, scenarios on the potential aftermath of the election, uh, particularly in circumstances where it's not decided uh, on election night. Um, can you just say something about what 
what what your work is, what those what you're thinking about those scenarios, and what what are some of the most important steps to avoid the the worst scenarios? Yeah, Jim. Uh, yeah, a few months ago, I've, I've been worried about this election for about a year and a half. But uh, about three months ago, I, I I decided to buckle down, and we set up a project at Harvard Law School called the Election Conflict Initiative, which is looking at what are the negative scenarios of what could happen? And then where are the positive scenarios? I mean, what could be actually, what are the positive practical steps that decision makers could take that could avert, it could promote a, a peaceful, free and fair orderly electoral process? The negative scenarios, which many of you know are, 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 are frightening. There's, uh, there is a, every possibility that if the results are in any way close or uncertain, uh, two weeks from now, or as the votes are counted, that uh, there will be widespread, both sides will, you know, will cry that the thing is being, uh, you know, stolen, or there's fears of the election being stolen. There is the, the as you know, the, 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 the possibility that on election day, it will look, there's a phenomenon that, uh, that political scientists call red mirage, which is, it will look because, because Republicans tend to vote more in person, those votes will be more evident uh, on November 3rd, November 4th. There's something called the blue shift, which is as mail-in ballots come in, but the president has declared that you know, mail-in ballots are likely to be fraudulent. And so there's all kinds of problems that could happen. I'll give you just one uh, example though of, of a positive example from 2018, because the same thing happened in the, in the elections in 2018. And in the election of 2018, President, uh, there was the, the, the Republican senatorial uh, candidate was ahead. And uh, President Trump said, well, just, you know, call it, just call it, call it for that person. And the Republican governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, said, this is Arizona. In Arizona, we count the votes. Let's be patient. We'll get through it. And they ended up counting the votes. And in the end, actually, the Democratic candidate won. But that's, that's the kind of leadership that's needed in this, in this moment to help us get through these, these scenarios. There, there was a project called the Transition Integrity Project that, that war-gamed out the, these different scenarios back in the summertime. And they had Democrats play the Democrats and Republicans by the Republicans. They played out different scenarios. And the, the main thing that they came up with was, I mean, there were a lot of different examples, but the calendar really matters. You gotta pay very careful attention to that calendar because the, because the and there's a, every possibility that, uh, there's possibilities that the votes will not be counted, not on the first day and perhaps not even the first week. And it could even take longer in some cases. And I've talked to, you know, spent a lot of time talking to constitutional law professors, electoral law professors, there's even the possibility, some people are, are concerned that it, this could go even into January. Now, those are the outside kind of scenarios. The question is, how do we as a country stay patient, wait as these things are counted, deal with potential violence? There's even fears right now that there'll be maybe violence at the polling places that we haven't uh, experienced before. We just, but the country needs to stay calm through it as much as possible. And this is where I see, as I mentioned, the role of business as a stabilizing influence, because it's gonna be a moment of turbulence in our history. And depending on 
certain decisions of how we handle this one way or another that will affect you know, the future of our democracy and our economy for, uh, for years, if not decades to come. Okay, Liz has got a list of the uh, folks who've asked questions. So let me uh, start with, uh, I think, Craig. That's just why. Uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, uh, most of the people on the uh, uh, on the Zoom right now have probably read Arthur Brooks' book, uh, Love Your Enemy. And, and Bill, this goes right into the prior question. When the enemy refuses to listen as part of what Brooks describes is the culture of contempt, I know you gave an example of step by step by step, but right now the emotions are so high and they're politically, I believe, motivated. Is there an icebreaker that you would suggest that, that, that Pelosi and Trump consider? It's a good question, Craig. I think we need to look for, you know, where are the surprising moves that could, that could start to calm the situation down? I try to, you know, with, with my team here, we try to kind of try to visualize positive futures, you know, like, for example, we, this is, this is, this is, I'm going to show you a Photoshop right now, but this is a Photoshop, but this is the kind of picture we'd like to see happen. You know, when, when you see Biden and Trump in the White House, no matter who won, that will send a signal to the country that, okay, we, we can get through this. Now that may happen, you know, obviously that may happen Thanksgiving time, December, January, but that's what we're aiming for. Now, what could Pelosi do in particular? I, th I think there are, and we need to think, I mean, of, I remember when I started as a graduate student working on, on negotiation, I, I was focused on the Arab-Israeli dispute. And in 1977, as many of you will recall, there, you know, this was four years after the Yom Kippur war, war in the Middle East. President Sadat of Egypt thought, how do I break through the psychological? He, he said, look, the, the conflict between us and the, and the Israelis is like 90% psychological. And this was a point when no Arab leader would even pronounce the name Israel, let alone recognize it. And he offered in an interview with Barbara Walters, he said, you know, I believe in my cause so much, I'd be willing to fly to the capital, you know, to Jerusalem and speak to the Israeli Knesset and tell them what I think. And a week later, he was there. That gesture was so surprising, was so shocking. It was a, it was a shockwave through the, through the Middle East. And overnight, it created a movement towards peace. And it led, you know, a year later to the Camp David Agreement and to the most durable peace agreement that stayed the time, the course of time for the last 40 years. So question is, what's the equivalent in our current conflict, the surprising gestures of flying to Jerusalem? Next, we have- uh, I'm waiting for the answer, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, well, well, I, my, my, I think, you know, I, I think the, uh, the, you know, I, this is where we have to brainstorm collectively, but, you know, one of one of my ideas is this one is uh, is is for is and and you know who who could bring these two together if it's not the business community if it's not business leaders for example who because President Trump listens to business he respects people like Steve Schwartzman for example you know who you know this is what happened in South Africa which is 
you know, the, the, the black leaders and the white leaders weren't talking at all, but there were business leaders who brought them together confidentially. And so maybe there are, there, you know, maybe Pelosi could, you know, instead of invoking the 25th Amendment, she could, uh, you know, there, maybe there could be some gesture where she sits down and she's, she invites McConnell for a sit down or Schumer and McConnell and Pelosi and, and, and McCarthy all sit down and say, we've got to find a better way to do this. Another, another thing that Jim and I've been talking about um, is, you know, that we think of this as a national election, but it's actually 50 individual state elections that are added up because we're still, you know, that constitution from a couple hundred years ago. And, and the governors are responsible for certifying the electors. The governors and their and local authorities are the ones who run these elections. For Republican and Democratic governors to get together and say, look, to the country, look, we're responsible for these elections. This is our job. We're going to do our job. And you could imagine, for example, you know, um, the governor you know, of Texas saying, we're gonna do our job. And the governor of Massachusetts saying, we're gonna do our job and reassuring the American people in a dramatic way, almost like a declaration of independence where people sign their, their names. We need those dramatic moments right now to reassure the American people that this is gonna be a fair and free election. Otherwise our election risks being delegitimized and our democracy being gravely wounded. Bill, I wish we had a Mandela to come in right now and bang some heads together. That's true. Yeah, Mandela. We, 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 that Mandela to me was, was the paramount example of a great negotiator, of someone who was a third side leader. He, he represented one side, but as he made very clear, he was fighting not just for the freedom of the blacks, he was fighting for the freedom of the whites too. And the first thing he did when he got to jail and he spent, as you know, 27 years in jail and prison was he learned the language of his adversary, the Afrikaners. He learned Afrikaans so he could speak to them in their own language. He learned their language. He learned their history. He learned their history of trauma so that when he did speak to them, he could, he could really connect and, and build that fragile trust that's so necessary if people are gonna proceed in a good, down a good path. Great, thanks. And we, we have a few questions, and I think we should be able to get to all of them that are that have been submitted. Uh, Doug Scrivener. The, uh, you've already covered a lot of the things that I was gonna ask, but let me shift the gears then slightly and talk about, uh, if you would, um, these issues of trust and ability to talk to each other and in the context of race relations. So put aside the politics per se, and, and how, how do we approach issues and you know, can we learn from uh, from South Africa? How do we how do we tackle the issues of race relations in the U.S.? It's a it's it's a tough one. We've been trying to tackle those issues or deal with those issues ever since the founding of this country, and we're we're dealing right now with issues that kept on being put down the you know the kicked down the field, and they're up very much in our face right now. I would. I would say that the first thing is, uh, is we need to start cultivating the art of listening. Um, negotiation is much more about listening than it's about talking. Really deep listening is, the, you know, in other words, because so much of the race relations thing is, is about 
you know, inflicting indignity on the other. It's, it's, it's humiliation. It's, uh, and so the only remedy I know is respect, deep respect. And respect starts with listening. Obviously, the listening needs to lead to actions. But really listening, educating ourselves, listening to what, is, what does it feel like to be in the, in the shoes of, a, you know, a person of color who's gone through all this and really learning that, learning, listening, the history. If we can begin that way as a nation, and I hope that, you know, that, that that's where we can be led. But to me, um, the, you know, listening is not the last step, but it's the first step. And uh, there's been a lot of talking, but it's, there's too little listening. And, li and by listening, I mean a kind of listening is very different than the kind of listening we often engage in, which is we listen within our shoes. I'm talking about the act of empathy, of putting empathetic listening, where you put yourself in the other side's shoes, you listen from within their frame of reference. That's not easy to do, but that's the, to me, that's, that's where the game actually begins to shift. That's what I've noticed in negotiations is it just, you know, these little acts that when you shift to each side, not just shouting at each other or whatever, but just starting to listen to the other. That's when, uh, that's when magic starts to happen. And that's what happened in, in, you know, in South Africa, as I mentioned, Mandela started listening to his adversaries. And of course, when you listen to their adversaries, what he found is, once he started listening to his adversaries, they're more willing to listen to him. And then, then the dynamic begins to shift. I've seen the same thing in union management negotiations, incidentally, you know, union management, they sit at the table and you know, they have a long list of demands or whatever. But when one side actually says, wait a minute, set aside those demands, let me hear. What is it, what does you really need? What are you really worried about? What's really going on in those situations? That's when the dynamic begins to shift is with listening and, and respect. Thank you. Next question is uh, from Carla O'Dell. Thank you. Actually, my questions have changed after having listened to you a minute. One, I have two. The first is on a scale of one to a zero to a hundred. What's the probability that you think we're going to not have a decision within two weeks? You've spoken with a lot of people who study this very closely. That we're not going to have a decision on election night. Or within two weeks or within oh, a week. Within two weeks of the election. Yes. I've heard you know things all over the map, but I'll just give you a sense of because uh, uh, this question was asked this morning on a large group call, and just uh, the polling came down to, if I remember the figures, uh, there was the largest number of people didn't think that we were going to have the election the election results within two weeks. It was like the largest group was, you know, maybe forty percent of the people, and I would say. You know, just following the, the 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 wisdom of crowds there. You know, I we we should yeah. need to be prepared, and we need to prepare those around us who generally have expected that you can get a you know the election can be called on on November third. That that is highly possible that it's not going to happen. It may not happen two weeks later, as we've seen in the primaries and so on. You know, sometimes it, it, they're taking three weeks, four weeks, five weeks to to count all the ballots. If the election is anywhere close, this is why it's going to take such enormous restraint on the part of the American people, because there will be people on the streets, there'll be protests, there'll be fears, there'll be anxiety, there'll be, there may be, you know, substantial violence or a lot of armed actors on the streets these days. 
So, you know, the, 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 you know the, the country is under so much psychological tension from COVID and economic stress. So this is the moment, this is why I'm saying, you know, the, the key in negotiations is to be able to go to the balcony, you know, to be able to take a step back. And that's why we all need to do that because you're, you're leaders, you're leaders and people, people regulate themselves according to how their leaders are. And so right now, as you see that, you know, the, some of the political leadership is highly unregulated, is highly, and so this is where people trust uh, leaders and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, 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 they'll listen to, this is why the third side's voice is so critical, not just the, the Democrats or the Republicans, but the voice of the society, the voice of the whole. And what I saw, for example, just interesting, like in, in Northern Ireland, as an example, where it was so stuck between the Catholics and Protestants, as you recall, people were so terrified of, um, of coming out and empathizing with the other. The, the, the ones who showed the first courage were mothers, actually, the mothers of victims, because they were the hardest to attack. And they opened up a little bit of space. And then that space got entered into by, by leaders of faith, you know, by, by ministers and priests. And then came in the business people. And the politicians were last, but it's like you, we need, to, you know, the, that the third side voices, which are the voices of women, the voices of leaders of faith, leaders of business, that needs to be heard loud and strong in these weeks and months if we're going to be able to get through this in one in one piece. Is it fair to say, Jim, can I do a quick follow up to that? Is it yeah. fair to say then that you do not think that our political leaders could come together around the surprising issue of keeping the country calm until the election votes. So you're appealing to others. It sounds to me like you've given up on our um, political leadership. I haven't given up. It's just that I think in highly polarized situations to depend on the political leadership alone is wishful thinking. This is why you need the community to stand up and for voices to stand up and voices to be heard. And we're beginning to see it, but it's like, and this is where, I, I mean, you know, one of the things I look at, like I, I've been working in, you know, in Colombia, I, I worked for the last 10 years, you know, I was an advisor to the president of Colombia trying to think about how do you bring an end to a 50 year civil war where this society knows nothing but civil war. It's not, and, and in order to do that, he had to mobilize not just the leadership, not just the political leader class, but the business, the universities, the women, that just, you know, just if, if the society doesn't get mobilized behind it, you can't do it. It's the same thing happened in South Africa, which is even with, you know, great leaders like Mandela or de Klerk, the level of political violence went up. And it, what it took was something called a national peace accord, which was, they had these peace committees all the way from local neighborhoods all the way to the nation, which had business people, labor union activists, women groups, civic society of various kinds, all working with the police to make sure to try and bring the levels of violence down so that a democratic process could take place, so that an election could take place. So I would not depend on political leadership alone. This is where the, it really is up to us you know, the citizens to stand up for the whole because political leaders are contending for power, but where's the container? Where's that container? And that, that really um, come, you know, has to be woven from outside from us. 
Thank you. Great, thanks. So uh, we're going to get to uh, all the questions that are in, but I'd like to uh, uh, turn it to Nancy Jacobson has got a comment or question. Comment? Yeah. No, I, I just want to mention, and I put it in the chat, Liz did, and I'd like her to read it, but we, you know, Bill, we've been thinking the same way you've been thinking that there may be a, a long period of, you know, uh, you know, until we know who wins, and that could lead to a lot of instability. So actually, today and tomorrow, uh, we are filming uh, Senator Manchin, Governor Hogan, and Senator Cassidy right now. Other senators are adding in post-election. They got a little nervous to do anything before the election, but I think Marco Rubio and you know Kristen Sinema, and there'll be others, Democrat, Republican. Um, but I'd love Liz Morrison, our, our wonderful Liz Morrison, to read this ad. So if there's anybody, we, we're going to be putting it up on national TV. Um, and sort of see what happens as a way to calm the country during this time. So Liz, do you want to read quickly? It's a 60 second ad. And then if people are interested, we're, we're looking for funding. So let us let, let me. Okay, great. Um, so the ad starts out with um, a bit of uh, just script saying, you know, with overview for over 200 years through wars, through economic turmoil, through natural disasters, one thing has remained constant. Every four years, Americans have voted to elect a president. And we then move to our elected officials. America is the greatest democracy the world has ever seen. But democracy requires that each, we each be responsible. We cast the votes, we count the votes, and we respect the results. We lose that and we lose everything. We are Republicans and Democrats who believe that we are first Americans. And we have a message for all Americans. We will get through this together. It is our duty to respect our democracy and work for America's future. The American ideal is too important. And we need to trust in America and the Americans who voted. On January 20th, we will swear in a president. And when we do, we all stand ready to work with him together. So that, that's what we're planning for. It's scheduled to run November 9th. We want to give it some time because we don't want to put the ad up until you know this is possibly set. But our hope is that'll also call attention to this organization, the movement, and uh, the politics uh, we're pushing. I think the ad's great. This is Joel. You might want to add an independence. We say Republican, Democrats, and independence, And we say democracy is too important to us and the world. That, that's good. And it's funny, Senator Manchin asked for that. And we're, we're, we're making a rendition because we think Angus King will be in the ad after the election as well. So we'll, you know, if we can keep it funded and keep it going and, you know, we, we buy Remnant TV, we'll buy, you know, keep it cheap. But uh, that, that's the idea. That's terrific, uh, Nancy and Liz. I'm, I'm really delighted. That, I mean, just listening, you know, that's a third side voice. That's the voice standing for the whole, you know, for the, for the future. And, and calling people to that. And I think it will be a very important voice on November 9th when it's run. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded that, you know, our country is, you know, founded by George Washington, who in his farewell address, it's worth going back and rereading. I, re I reread that every single year because it's just a beautiful thing. It was written actually largely by Alexander Hamilton, but, but in it, what Washington says is, 
you know, he says to the American people, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm an old man right now. You may not listen to me, but this is, this is what I want to leave for you. He says, you know, the most precious treasure you as Americans have, we as Americans have, is our unity. That's what's critical to our individual and collective happiness. And he asks us, to, and he says, the biggest danger we face is the peril, the poison of factionalism, the factional spirit. So he was warning us about this. And I think it's good to go back and, and remember that and just remember, you know, our history, you know, because it was founded by people who worked across all kinds of divisions and all kinds of partisan things to, to try and together. And when we were, when we did actually experience a terrible civil war, you know, then you have, you know, a leader like Lincoln who, you know, called out, you know, in his second inaugural address, he called out the better angels of our nature. And he said, uh, you know, he called us to, and which is, I think what we're going to have to do after this election is to bind the wounds of our nation and with malice toward none and charity toward all. Uh, that's, that's the spirit. I think this is a time to kind of invoke these great leaders of the past, because those are, those, those are the founding kind of values of this society. And we need to go back and remember what those are. We've got uh, two questions left. Uh, so I think this is timing is perfect. Uh, Bill Conkler and then Mel Gray. So uh, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Um, Given where we are today with SCOTUS and with how Trump has behaved towards, not only towards the Democrats, but towards everyone, what do you think, assuming the Democrats run the table, what do you think the gesture, because Joe Biden has talked about bringing people back together, what do you think he needs to do um, because my expectation is if you, if, you lo if you pack the court, you end the filibuster, you add two states, you raise taxes, Republicans like me are just going to say, forget it. You know, we'll, we'll wait you out. Thank you. Yeah, well, I think one of the, if, if Biden does win, if the polls are right and Biden does win and we get through this, I think he has the potential to be what he says he's going to be, which is a unifier. And that's his, been his whole track record. He works across the aisle. Uh, he actually has a good personal relationship with Mitch McConnell. This is an example. And, uh, and I hope that his gesture is going to be to really reach out to make it, as he says he wants to make it a very diverse cabinet. I hope it's going to be politically diverse as well. And there's going to be Republican. Uh, Republican in the cabinet. And I hope that that one of the first things he'll do is because it's not just President Trump, it's he has a base, a very strong base and people who believe so strongly in him, we're going to be bitterly disappointed and perhaps even in denial of the fact that that their candidate lost. There'll be a lot of anger. The, the one advantage we have is that Biden comes from the same demographic of that base, that working class white base there, he can, who felt left out and whom Trump actually, you know, spoke to. And, and I, I would like to see him make a listening tour, you know, do a listening tour and say to people, look, uh, you know, to all the people who voted for President Trump is that, you know, you're not wrong. You know, we, you know, 
we, I understand why you, why you voted the way you did. Understand that a lot of you felt left out, felt left out of the whole globalization, felt, uh, you know, or felt looked down on or condescended to. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to you. I'm gonna listen to all parts of America, but I'm gonna listen to you. We're not gonna make that mistake again. So I'd love to see him, you know, and, and gestures like uh, whatever it is, or, or like Kamala Harris going down a coal mine and just, but just, you know, just really reassuring America that he's going to be the president of all Americans, not just those who voted for him. And to me, that's absolutely essential if we're gonna to begin to, to go through this together, because if we ha keep on having this whipsaw back and forth as we have the last uh, uh, the last years, you know, our democracy, you know, will be badly damaged. And uh, this is a, this is a chance we're given, we're, you know, we'd be, we're given a chance to try to recreate the more perfect union that our, that the founders dreamed of. Thanks, great answer. So uh, Mel Gray, please. This has been an extremely um, interesting and, and I think somewhat inspiring. The the I I think I'm past the 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 finale here um, with uh, with any other questions. Um, I did I did have two. Uh, they're relatively I think less um, uh, significant than what we just heard, um, but um, one of them was. Uh, will the electoral college uh, be part of the solution or part of the problem after the uh, after uh, or during the, the period when the votes are being counted? Yeah, well, I, I'm not the expert, but I've talked to many experts about that. Um, and, you know, there, there are different scenarios. One scenario, almost no one is projecting that President Trump would win the popular vote. So there is a possibility that he would squeak by as he as he did last time, but maybe even a tighter squeak of you know 270 electoral votes, for example, in the electoral college, while Biden has a substantial majority. In the simulations that were done of that scenario, actually, that was the most dangerous scenario because you know there were millions of protesters, there was violence, there was even uh, talk of secession and all kinds of all kinds of things. So I think uh, that would be really, really uh, um, something, again, we, we've been for a, a wild ride. And so the, the other thing is uh, about the nature of the Electoral College is that uh, there's fears, for example, and in some of the scenarios that if some states are not able to count all their votes, that there's fears that, that some states would choose to have the state legislature uh, appoint the electors, which would be, you know, and then they would go into Congress. And all I can say is that in 1876 and 1877, where there was a similar kind of uh, a, a highly contested election. Rutherford Hayes. Yeah, exactly. Rutherford Hayes. And, and, uh, and it was ultimately settled by negotiation with a very poor outcome, a very poor negotiation because it ended reconstruction and basically set the whole racial issue back another hundred years. And so the, the question is, uh, and then there was an electoral count law in 1888 that was passed to try and avoid that happening. But if you actually read that law, it's very, it's pretty vague. It's not well written. And so in the end, 
uh, and this is what I've seen in other countries too. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to imagine this, but in the end, if you get into those kind of scenarios, you know, it may call for a negotiation as it did in 1877, but hopefully a wise negotiation, a problem-solving negotiation where there's some effective, and I've seen this happen in other countries too. I mean, it's, it's inconceivable for us because we think these things are all just handled by election or by the courts. But negotiation can be effective because it can address the interests and the concerns and the fears of both parties and, and advance the interests of the nation. So one thing to think about, and that we've been trying to think about that, obviously, because this is a negotiation project, of what would that negotiation look like? What would be the issues? Would the issues be, for example, issues like the filibuster uh, or the Supreme Court and so on? How do you balance things so that both parties both parties, both sides, you know, of this particular political contest, everyone has interests, everyone has rights, everyone has a certain power. So how do how do we do this move forward in a good way? Hopefully we'll never get there. I mean, we're gonna, you know, obviously we're praying for the best, but we have to actually prepare as, you know, as good business people, you would always, you know, prepare for the worst case scenarios. And so one of the questions we, we've been asking ourselves as an exercise is, Imagine it's January 20th or January 6th, you know, when, when the electors are, 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 are selected or, or received in Congress. What do we wish we'd done back here on October 20th to prepare for that, you know? Because to think backwards and, and, and what, are, what, are, what are our plans B and C and D to preserve and safeguard um, our republic? We, have, we just have a couple of minutes left and I'm going to try to squeeze in one uh, one quick question uh, to William. Is I mean, is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you specifically would think No Labels or the Problem Solvers Caucus should be doing or thinking about? I mean, you've heard about the ad. Uh, is is there anything else you'd want us to think about or can uh, consider to uh, deal with this situation? Well, it's. It's a really good question. Uh, there, there are a number of things. I mean, one, one thing we haven't talked a lot about, but I think is something worth um, thinking about. And I don't know what new labels could do, but is, is the prospect of levels of violence that we haven't seen before in our country in association with, with elections. And uh, just to be mindful that, um, that in highly polarized societies, as I've seen elsewhere in the world, when you have a highly polarized society, you have an election which is polarizing and you have a lot of weapons circulating and, and, and armed groups. Uh, so it's just to be mindful of that because, um, and to really think about as a community, how do we work together? How do we work together with our police forces, for example, in our communities, in our cities, to make sure that you know, if protesters are coming out or there's violence, how do we, how do we, how do we work to come together as a community to, to reduce violence? Because one thing I can say from being in other situations around the world is we're in the lucky position right now is we can prevent a civil conflagration. We can prevent at the worst what Americans fear is a civil war. Because once the blood starts flowing in large numbers, one thing leads to another and it becomes like in Colombia, you know, 50 years. I'm not saying it would go on for 50 years, but I'm just saying, you know, our own civil war was such a devastation. And so right now, this is the moment for all, you know, as uh, for all good citizens to to really put our our full attention 
on helping our country through this, through the possibility of a constitutional crisis, but also through the possibility of how do we work together to, to practically reduce violence. And that will be in our communities and with our mayors, with our forces and so on. That's what happened in South Africa. And that's what allowed the election that elected Nelson Mandela to take place was that engagement, including by the business community to, to, to say, we've got to come to our senses and, and, uh, and prevent uh, widespread bloodshed. I, I, I'd like to say one thing if I can, is that all right? Please. You know, one of the big concerns that we all have to have, especially the folks on this call that are interested in their preserving their country, is that a lot of our institutions have been politicized. You know, I'm especially concerned about the Department of Justice uh, under Bill Barr, uh, but a lot of other institutions, whether it's the FBI, the CIA, other institutions at the federal level, have been either politicized or have been discredited. And so when we hear, when we hear the idea that we have to uh, look to the governors and the mayors, that's really important because they haven't been as, you know, infected, let's say. We have to think of how can we not let those institutions that have been politicized or discredited play a central role in this because we won't be able to trust them or, and, and we can't count on them to do what they've historically done. And how can we empower other outside agencies as been, has been suggested tonight, the business community, governors, mayors, uh, other local officials, how can we empower them in the process? So I think that's a very clear uh, instruction from what we've heard here tonight. But a part of it has to also do with di disempowering uh, those institutions. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the Department of Justice, especially. We've hit our, uh, we've hit our stopping point, and uh, I want to thank William so much for, for a great discussion, and um, we're ready to sign off. And unless you have any last word you want to, want to say? I just want to thank you all and uh, thank you, Jim, for the opportunity and commend Nancy and Liz and all and Tom and all the people who work with No Labels because it's not just now. We've got to get through this, but then we've got to get through the next four years because and so the work that No Labels does of problem solving, taking tackling these problems. And I'd love to see what would it mean to, to have a problem solving politics and a problem solving community you know, at all levels of our society. And so I think it's really, uh, I'm inspired by your work, I commend it, and I, I hope that you receive all the support that you deserve. William Urey notes that a key to productive problem solving is finding solutions that work for both parties. And in the case of national issues, he calls them a win-win-win. A win for both sides of the aisle is a win for the country as well. He believes achieving these win-win-wins requires leaders to build bridges across the aisle and avoid personal anger. But it also requires the engagement of what he calls the third side, which is born of his insight that it takes two sides to fight, but that it often takes a third side to stop the fighting. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break a No Labels podcast.